It was a hundred years ago or so that under Joseph Stalin, immense cruelty was inflicted on the church in the Soviet Union. Uh, The easy bit was that uh, they decided to change the calendar. So they moved from a seven-day week to a six-day week, uh, and uh, you only got one day off, and that was never a Sunday, so worship immediately became almost impossible for the large, thriving Christian community. And then they decided that December 25 and 26 uh, would be made days of national productivity uh, so that uh, uh, workers would have to go and have to celebrate the work ethic. So celebrating the birth of the Savior was now gone. Those were the nice things. The nasty things was to do with closing every church they could. Um, Nearly all the clergy were either uh, taken to labor camps or shot And in fact, it was in just one year, uh, in 1937, that more than 85,000 Orthodox priests were shot, killed in a single year. We go to Cambodia, another event that we've lived through in our lifetime. 1975, the Khmer Rouge, led by Pol Pot, inflicted terrible uh, things on the nation as a whole, of which the church was part. Banned were all institutions, including banks, hospitals, schools, and churches, and the family. Two million Cambodians died by starvation, torture, or execution, and the church there suffered in the same way. Or take China, again within our living memory, for almost everyone here, including me. 1960, in those 1960s, Chairman Mao, again, uh, brought a revolution through his Red Army, And that included particularly an attack on religion and the Christian church. He had this great determination to stamp out every vestige of faith, particularly Christianity. Uh, Confiscated church facilities, imprisoned church leaders, sent them to work in factories, uh, ridiculed faith, burnt every Bible they could get their hands on. That was then. That was history we've lived through and that is then. But what about now? Today, churches in every one of those countries are flourishing, thriving. Despite all that have been stacked against them, they are now doing extraordinarily well. And in fact, if they had to choose a psalm to sing that expressed what they've been through and where they are now, Psalm 124, which we had read so well for us this morning, would have been the one I'm sure they would choose. A psalm that uh, they would sing which would uh, carry these words, if God hadn't been for us. Sing all you people, sing. If God hadn't been for us, uh, then when everyone was against us, then we would have been wiped out, annihilated, nowhere off the face of the planet. But God was for us. And look at us now. See, Psalm uh, 125 and 124 are this part of this little group of Psalms that Jewish pilgrims would sing three times a year as they traveled in pilgrimage to go to worship for the great festivals, one of the great festivals, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. They would sing it as they climbed the hill to go into, to, 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 to rise into Jerusalem. That's why at the beginning it's described a, a, a psalm of ascent. It's sung as they go up. It's also believed that the, uh, <coughs> the, excuse me, the, the, the Levite singers would sing it as they ascended the 15 steps to minister into the temple. So whether it's a small company or a large company, here they are making a journey to worship. 
and reminding themselves of how good God has been to them. But what has this got to do with China or Cambodia or Russia and the Christians there or even us here? Uh, what has it got to do with to us? This, this psalm is on the lips of an ancient people. Uh, they're not on our lips. Why does it matter to us? Well, of course, the psalm is from, a, from the lips of a people who are God's covenant people. They're the people that God had made a special agreement with. He said, I will be your God to Abraham if you will be my people. And so this is a nation which is also a promised, gathered community worshipping God. That community is no more. Uh, when Jesus came, he instituted a new covenant, a new agreement with his people, the church, signed in his blood and saying, if you will be my people, you will be my God. The church now, worldwide, not just this body of people here, but wherever the sun may set, is now that new people of God. They're the people who, who can carry these words on their lips. So it has everything to do with us. But before we look at the detail of that, I think there's a bigger picture which will be helpful to us to get hold of. And, and it's wrapped up with just a couple of key words in the text here. They're the words us uh, and the word we. You see, this is not an I psalm. We've looked at I psalms the last couple of weeks, haven't we? We've looked at uh, one, Psalm 121. I will look to the hills uh, from where I will find my help. Uh, psalm 122 last week. Um, it made me glad to hear. You see, this is not a, a, an I or a we psalm, a, an I psalm. This is a, a we psalm. This is about the people of God. It's plural. Uh, does that matter? It actually matters a huge amount because who the words come from and who the words come to make a significant difference as how do we understand them. It's so easy if we always think in the singular and not the plural to miss what is going on. We miss the fact that much of God's revelation and instructions and commands and blessings don't just come to individuals, but they also come to his people as a community, either gathered in a place like this or gathered in another country or gathered worldwide. We miss it. Um, I don't think it's wholly our fault that we miss it. Uh, I think we miss it for, for two reasons. The first one is the English language is to blame. Right. It's nice to blame someone else other than ourselves, I think. The English language is to blame. The problem is there is only one word in English for you, isn't there? Um, it's, it's you, maybe you, or maybe you. So we miss it. It's not like that in, in other languages. Um, anyone here speak French? Oh, you got, I, I did guess right. Okay. So uh, you singular in French is absolutely right. And plural in French is? Okay. Not in English. Um, German? Anyone speak some German? Okay. So, so singular in German? Do? Okay. And plural is? Very good. Uh, anyone can manage um, Mongolian? What about Mongolian? <laughs> now, come on, this is Claygate. We ought to be able to manage Mongolian in Claygate. Well, actually, if you could, I wouldn't be able to cope. But in English, you singular you, plural you. So we miss it. And so, time and again, I think that we come to Scripture and we see the, the I and we kind of assume that it's, 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 it, it is singular, but God is wanted to say in plural. There's another thing to blame as well. And, and, and uh, I should just say that this is a good example of how we get it wrong. Uh, this is a, a verse that I've seen written on greetings cards and messages to individuals who are going through a bad time. For I know the plans 
I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Uh, plans to give you hope for a future. But that, are, that you there is actually plural. That is God writing to his people who have been taken off to exile and wondering if they've got a future at all. And, and so we would read that wrongly, make promises to people that are not in Scripture when we miss it for the big picture. Uh, the, the, the second thing that, we, that uh, I would blame is um, the invention of the printing press. Now, I think books are wonderful. And Mike's going to read one, which is really, really impressive. But, but sociologists tell us uh, that the, uh, uh, the, the way we receive our information, particularly the way we learn, has a profound impact on us in the way we behave. Before the printing press came, private study was impossible. Right? If you wanted to learn, you needed someone else to help you. You sat at your mother's knee, your father's bench, or you gathered people around you and you learned from them. Community was essential to learn and prosper and grow. With the arrival of, of books and all the blessings they brought, it also meant that private study was the way that most people learned. Has had a huge impact. Blessings, certainly, encountering the scripture by ourselves is wonderful. But what happened is that we've, we've kind of lost the benefit and the need of the fact that much of God's revelation comes to us as clusters of people, as groups. Uh, and so we miss it in that way. That's why small groups are so important. Harder the older you are because you're more likely to have been educated in the privacy of a book and so meeting with other people in a group is harder than many people would understand. And, and there's huge forgiveness for that. But, but the opportunity to be within a group of people Learning, listening, and sharing is part of God's plan. That's why the uh, great opportunity that's coming to this church in, uh, in October and November, the 40 days of community, when we will all be reading daily the same passages of Scripture together, individually, but kind of, in a sense, collectively, will be matched with an opportunity to come to the church uh, either on Wednesdays or Thursday morning, Wednesday evenings or Thursday mornings, either in our existing home groups or to small groups or to be part of a new one to kind of road test the concept uh, will be really significant and important to do. A chance to learn why community is important but also to experience it for ourselves. And there'll be lots of information on this coming up and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But what are the psalm, what are the psalm itself um, and what do we learn from that? As they, the people are making their journey to the temple to worship, you know, they look back at a moment or moments in their history uh, when everyone was against them. They use this, they, the psalmist used this wonderful poetic language. They've been in danger of being swallowed up in raging waters, helpless as a rabbit in a pack of snarling dogs, but rescued by God and then free as a bird in flight. What a contrast. When in their history uh, was that? We haven't the slightest idea, all right? No one in all their studies is able to specifically and surely identify at which point in the history of God's people they were, that was so bad that, that the psalmist might have been writing about. Um, likely to be some sort of military time, but who knows. Uh, that has to be helpful to us. Because if we knew exactly when, they would be tempted to think that it's only in circumstances like that that God acts, and only the way he acts is the way it applies to us. Instead, we've got a principle a principle that when the chips are down, when everyone's against us as a body of people, uh, God is on our side. 
And there, there, there are three things, I think, which would be helpful for us to, to take out of this. I think the first thing is that, uh, that our God is a God who takes sides. Our God is a God who takes sides. Um, if it hadn't been, if God hadn't been for us when everyone was against us, that's kind of controversial, isn't it, in today's world? We could have done it when we were a lot younger. But today we live in a world where all religions are deemed to be equal. It's very un-PC to claim that ours is the God who's on our side. And actually we need to be, take care we don't misunderstand exactly what's being said here. You know, because this is not about God being on our side to help us have our way. Um, as I perceive uh, across the water where the, the Christian far right, who are always right, claim that God is on their side for their views. That's not what is happening here. Um, it's not about uh, uh, that kind of thing, about God being on our side of the argument. Uh, it, it's not pride. It's a, a statement of huge humility, really, that the Creator God is on our side in that He wants to keep us safe and wants us to flourish. The second thing we learn from this is that, is that God acts. God acts at uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon. I will be glued in front of a, a television set, um, desperately on the side of the team playing in blue. Problem is that my being on their side will not make a whit of difference to the glorious outcome that I'm trusting for. All right? But God is not like that. God is not a, a God who simply thinks it's a good idea to support us from the distance. You know, like uh, being a spectator as the bike ride goes through Surrey, you know, cursing the cyclists for the rest of the year, but at this point cheering them on like mad. Um, it's not like that. God, it's not from a distance. God steps in and acts. God, God, God goes for us. <clears throat> they celebrate through the words of the psalmist the fact that, that God just didn't, was not for, for, just for them. He was with them in action. <clears throat> that he changed the situation at a time when they were about to be swallowed alive, swept away by a flood of rage, lost in the, in, in the waters. What did God do? God did not leave us. He did not abandon us helpless, said the psalmist, like a rabbit in a pack of dogs. As a result, we have flown from their fangs, free of the traps, free as a bird. Their grip is broken, and we're free as a bird in flight. God stepped in and took action, changed their future. God is not a benevolent, distant father, but one who is for us as a community, either here or worldwide, and he's, he's active with his sleeves rolled up. The third thing is to understand who is this God who does this. And the psalmist wants us to understand that this is the true God. God's strong name is our help, he says. The same God who made heaven and earth. Oh, that one. The God who made heaven and earth. I, uh, I spend some of my time on social media arguing with atheists. It's a fairly futile task, but it happens from time to time. And uh, they, they love throwing out this seemingly trick question, which is, what makes your God different from all the ones you don't, be you don't believe in? Lots of gods you don't believe in. What makes your God different? And I love getting that question, because when it comes, I think they're so smug at the other end, typing that in. And my answer is, well, what makes my God different is he is the one who made everything out of nothing. You somehow believe, dear atheist, that, uh, uh, that nothing made 
something out of nothing. I believe God made everything out of nothing. And this is the God. And this is the God that the psalmist wants us to understand. Not the God who does it is not some wooden idol, not some fraction or idea, but the creator God who made everything that made it possible. And of course, if God can do that, if God can make everything out of nothing in such perfection, how can he not only being for us, deliver us, and change our future? So they sang to remind themselves. That's why they sang. They sang to remind themselves of the kind of God they had and what he'd done in their history. And I would suggest to you there are times when we need to do the same. We need to open up our eyes to a God is at work. And I think we are allowed to make this personal, despite what I said about being a group. I think we are allowed to own this personally. Why? Because if God is for us as a, as, as a company of believers, he's for those individuals who are part of that company. Um, if God is for his church, uh, then he's for those who make up his church. And of course, there will be challenges and even tragedies in our lives, won't they? But ultimately, we have a God who is for you and acts for you and me. That's actually well expressed in the, the second Psalm, 125, that was read. For the words there show us that with a God like this, our trust in him should not be moved. If God can be trusted because of who he is and what he's done in history, then our trust in him should, could not, be, should not be moved, just like a, a mountain that is sure and firm and solid. Um, we're allowed also to make it local. How did we as a church get here you know, as, as a body of people? What happened? And you may say, well, you know, we have not had everything against us. We have you know, not people throw rocks in the streets. They're not trying to you know, burn down our churches and take our Bibles. And that would be true. We are very fortunate people in, in, a, in, in the West. But at the same time, there are the struggles, aren't there? Um, th there is a prevailing culture that says this is not a good idea. All right? There's a prevailing culture out there that says you have all lost your marbles and it's, there's much better things to do on a Sunday than this. And in fact, let's face it, however many people meet here during the fourth, four congregations of a Sunday, most people in Claygate are not here. That's the prevailing culture that's there. And of course, if you were to trace the media and everything else, again, there's that general hostility that's there. And of course, if you trace the history of this church, there have been the moments when you know, the triumph that's come has, has come against some, some significant difficulties in the past. And we're called to remind ourselves that we've got to where we are, uh, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done. We're here not because we're smarter, cleverer, or worked harder than anyone else, but because God has been with us, for us, and he has acted. See, the impact of his preached word on lives, the impact has come not because of the quality of the preaching, but of the work of God's spirit in our lives. Uh, the things that have been able to be built here in terms of plant have come because God has prompted generosity of extraordinary measures in the hearts of his people. God has also provided us the right people to lead and guide. And right now we're praying for that next step, aren't we? Uh, I'm told, whether I should tell you this or not, there have been a good number of applications. That's God at work on our side. 
You know. And perhaps it's at this moment we need to reclaim that verse that we too often attribute to being for individuals and, and claim it for ourselves at this point of our church's history. To understand that God knows us and he knows the plans he has for us. He has plans to prosper us as a, a church family. And plans not to do us harm, but plans us to give us hope and a future. Something to take to our hearts as we move into the next stage of development and growth here. But what about the, the world church? And how's that happening? What of the former Soviet Union, where the churches are alive and well there? Well, I just read recently that the number of saying that they're Orthodox Christians has doubled in the past 25 years. No wonder they would seek to sing this psalm. What about Cambodia? Well, in Cambodia, I'd want to tell you about uh, someone called Barnabas Mam. I had the privilege to meet face-to-face, and I know his story is true. Born a Buddhist, joined the Communist Party. Uh, three years before Pol Pot inv- invaded, uh, he went as an active communist uh, to disrupt a major Christian rally heard the speaker speak about the prodigal son. He said, that's me, gave his life to Christ. Uh, When Pol Pot came, he found himself uh, taken away to work, uh, and they were planning, I think, to starve him pretty well to death. He had to work hard in the fields, raiding across a big river to get there, fed only on a bowl of rice. And he found, time after time, as he returned home there, having waded through the waters, that caught up in his clothes were freshwater crayfish, which fed him and gave him his strength and enabled him to survive God. It was for him and for the church and acted, did that. He then went to a refugee camp, one of those huge refugee camps that were on the borders of Cambodia and planted 17 churches there and today is a major supporter of the growing church that is happening in Cambodia. What about China? It's a congregation in in, in Nanjing. Before the revolution, there would have been about a million members, uh, a million Christians in China. Now they figure there are at least 80 million, and it may be twice that number. Within 15 years, China is set to become the world's largest Christian nation. I wonder what Pol Pot, if he could turn in his grave, would think about that. And it's a congregation who would be singing. If God hadn't been for us altogether now, if God had not been for us, when everyone went against us, and we are that people, those words belong on our lips to remind us of God's great deliverance. But of course we have a perspective, don't we? That the psalmist could not have because it had not happened. We have a perspective of the greatest deliverance ever in human history. A God who is for us and acts for us, the creator of all things came himself in the person of his son and taught us how to live, showed us how to live, gave his life on the cross so we could be forgiven and have all the the tyrant and pressures of sin removed so we could be clean and comfortable in God's presence and then rose for the dead to live his life through us. The greatest act of recovery and deliverance in history. And so this morning, we are here as a people of God and peoples of God 
can celebrate the fact that God is for us, acts for us, and will deliver us and had delivered us. Let's live with joy because that is so true. Amen.